today's scripture reading comes from Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 10, and chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. It's a long one. <laughs> this very day I appoint you over nations and empires to dig up and pull down, to destroy and demolish, to build and plant. If I took you to court, Lord, you would win, but I still have questions about your justice. Why do guilty persons enjoy success? Why are evildoers so happy? You plant them and they take root. They flourish and they bear fruit. You are always on their lips, but far from their hearts. Yet you, Lord, you know me, you see me. You can tell that I love you. So drag them away and butcher them like sheep. Prepare them for the slaughterhouse. How long will the land mourn and the grass in the fields dry up? The animals and birds are swept away due to the evil of those in the land. The people say, God doesn't see what we're up to. If you have raced with people and are worn out, how will you compete with horses? If you fall down in an open field, how will you survive in the forest along the Jordan? Even your relatives, your very family, are planning to trap you. They are out to get you, so don't trust them, even if they appear to be on your side. I have abandoned my house. I have deserted my inheritance. I have given the one I love into the power of her enemies. My inheritance has turned against me like a lion in the forest. She growls at me, therefore I have rejected her. My inheritance has become like a bird of prey, surrounded and attacked. Go, gather all the wild animals for the feast. Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They have trampled down my field. They have reduced my treasured field to a desolate wilderness. They have devastated her, desolate. She cries out to me in distress. The whole land is desolate and no one seems to care. Over all the desert roads, destroyers march, for the sword of the Lord devours from one end of the land to the other. No one is safe. They have sown wheat and reaped weeds. They have worn themselves out for nothing. They will be ashamed of their harvest on account of the Lord's fierce anger. The Lord proclaims, the evil nations have seized the land that I gave my people Israel. I am going to dig them up from their own lands, and I will dig up the people of Judah from among them. And after I have dug them up, I will again have compassion on them and restore their inheritance and their land. And then, if they learn the ways of my people to make a solemn pledge in my name, as the Lord lives, just as they once taught my people to swear to Baal, they will be built up in the midst of my people. But if they don't listen, I will dig up that nation. Yes, I will dig up and destroy, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Many years ago when I was, I think I was 15, I had an aunt and uncle that lived in Tampa. And so me and my mom and dad, and I have a brother that's four years younger than me, we decided to go see them, and we were going to go to Walt Disney World while we were there. So um, we drive to Walt Disney World, and um, we're walking around the park. This is like all new. It's just crazy, and like, oh, wow, this is amazing. Now, this would have been in the early 80s, I guess, mid-80s, so... Anyway, let me just come back and say this. I do not do roller coasters, Renee and Billy. I do not. You just need to know that. I don't do them. I might could die. And I, I'm just not willing to risk myself like that. So I, my Uncle Bobby takes us to Walt Disney World, and we get in line for this thing, and it's like this you know, white, huge dome-looking thing, right? Do y'all know what I'm about to describe? Anybody been on Space Mountain? Yeah, it was that one. We didn't know what it was. He just kept saying, and he was giggling the whole time. Should have been a clue. Because my parents didn't ride roller coasters either. And so we get in line for Space Mountain, and, you know, we, 
I don't remember hearing screams or hollering. Maybe I did and blocked it out. I don't remember. But we get up there and we get in like the little like two-seater thing that you go through. And I'm, I'm still not thinking this is a roller coaster. I'm thinking this is just some kind of fun ride that kind of probably meanders through the dark. Or not the dark. I didn't know it was dark. Just through the thing. So <laughs> uh, me and my mom get in this thing and we start going down. Uh, go, we start out and it's like, like lasers and lights. Is that what it is to begin with? Yeah. So you still don't know what you're doing, right? You're just like, oh, okay, this is not so bad. And then all of a sudden, it's pitch black, and you can't see your hand in front of your face. And I realize we're on a roller coaster in the dark, and I'm going to die. And I remember yelling back to my mom, I've changed my mind, I've changed my mind, I want to open this right now. I've changed my mind. So the moral of that story is never trust Uncle Bobby. He will lie to you. Changing our minds. You know, the concept of deconstruction has been quite a buzzword here lately. And if you follow anybody on Twitter in regards to this topic, you can really get off into some weeds. I've mentioned to you before, like the Theo bros on Twitter. You might want to give them a look if you just want to be like, get angry for a second. But it's kind of interesting. And it is interesting to see how... um, different people are talking about deconstruction in such a negative way all of a sudden. Like Matt Chandler, who is a Southern Baptist preacher, kind of a big wig in that world, he's, he, after preaching a sermon, he equated deconstruction with leaving the faith. Matt Chandler said that it doesn't mean doubt or theological wrestle or struggling through church hurt. It means just walking away from the faith. This other guy, John Cooper, He says, it's time that we declare war against this deconstruction Christian movement. There's nothing Christian about it. It is a false religion. Uh, Yeah, I think something might have been missed there. Tyler Huckabee says it can mean deconversion, or it can mean your faith looking more or less the same as it always did. But most often, it's somewhere in between, rethinking the ways you've always believed and coming to a new, different understanding of parts of it. I hope that you caught when he says new and different. He doesn't say new and better. It's just different. You might see it a little bit differently. And for the people that still, let's say you, there's a theological concept you've grabbed a hold of, and you're like, oh, okay, I see that. That's, that's right. It doesn't mean that the people in your tribe or your, your people in general that still believe that, that they're idiots or they're not as spiritual as you. That's not it at all. You just see it differently. But deconstruction is not new. It's uh, last week we heard from Vicki about the spiritual stages of faith, and um, she talked about how these church fathers they they were working through deconstruction themselves. It's not new. I mean, do you still believe the things you believe about anything today that you did at 20 years old? Do you still believe the world in the same way in so many years? No, we change. We think differently. We see the world differently. We are supposed to. We are supposed to change. We are supposed to evolve a little bit. How many of you would say, and I'm going to do a raise of hands here, raising of hands here. How many of you would say that you see a theological, religious, spiritual concept differently from the way you did five years ago? Raise your hand. What about ten years ago? What about 30 years ago? 
in a sentence? Yeah, thank you. Mike Tunis so eloquently says, how about last week? He's right. In a sentence or in a word, would you share with us what happened to cause you to see it differently? Life. Laura says life. That's true. That's it. Tell me some things, tools, or people, maybe books, podcasts, whatever. Who helped you navigate this change? Do you have any word of advice that you'd like to share with us about what's helpful in this mode of life? Anne Lamont, Shane Claiborne, Sarah Bessie, Peter Rollins, yeah, and Amago. The liturgist, yes, yes. That was a whole new way of thinking about the Bible and Jesus. Anyone else? Yes. Rachel Held Evans, absolutely. Brian McLaren, yes. For those of you that are interested in some of these names we're calling out, see us after church and we'll, we can get you to where you need to go. Yes. Yeah, Brennan Manning's Ragamuffin Gospel. And that's been around for a minute, hadn't it? Wasn't that written in the 80s? Yeah, the 80s. I think so too. Our understanding of God, Jesus, the Bible, the Holy Spirit, the church, it should evolve. It should change over time. And when we experience those things, we learn that it is so much more complex than the way we thought it was. Like Vicki was sharing last week, these stages of faith that we go through, we begin with this very simplistic of, yeah, this is, what it, this is what the Bible says, this is what my pastor told me, this is what my Sunday school teacher said, and you resonate with that. They're like, yeah, that makes sense. Yes, that's something to hold on to. But then life happens, like Laura said, and suddenly it doesn't make sense anymore. Or maybe some of it does, but a piece of it doesn't make sense. And so then we're in a position where we have to rethink, what do I really believe about this? And not only that, but the people that we meet along the way, right? Somewhere along the way, you meet someone who does not see the Bible, God, Jesus, etc., the way you do, right? I grew up in rural, rural Mississippi. We were all either Baptist or Methodist or Church of Christ. We all were the same. We thought the same things. I, I'm sure there were some oddballs around in Belmont, but I don't remember them. If they were, they kept it to themselves. We all saw the world in the same way, pretty much. And it gave us uh, a firm foundation. It gave us surety. It gave us certainty that this is the way God works. This is the way the world works. And then maybe we go to college and we meet someone who's of a different mindset than we are. And we're like, whoa, wait a minute, what happened? You know, I, I wasn't into, it wasn't until I was like in my mid-30s that I realized that not everyone thought that the way the world would end was a left-behind novel. I thought we all believed that. And I didn't realize there were other theories, other ideas out there, because let's just be completely honest. We really don't know. Can I get an amen? <laughs> but it sure is nice to have some certainty in it, isn't there? Because, I mean, none of us know what happens when we die. So it's nice to have this laid out for us so pretty and plain and horrific and terrible and awful. 
but it's nice to have a sure footing. But then we meet people who are, they, they're Episcopalian, they're Catholic, they're Jewish. <laughs> we meet, they're Hindu. We meet people along the way and, they, and we see them, these are good people. Well, I thought they were supposed to be awful because they're bound for hell, right? So they have to be awful. And then we discover they're not so bad. As a matter of fact, they really kind of are better at this than I am. What's going on? And again, we have to adjust our thinking. We have to change our mind. We have to be willing to say, I could be wrong. It's the worst thing on the planet to say for some of us. Yes, I'm talking about myself. But it is what we have to get to. If not, we're demonizing every person on the planet that doesn't think exactly like us. And how's that helpful? How's that even true? You know, the word repent in the New Testament, it comes from a Greek word that means where we get the word metamorphosis. And I don't want to get into this too much because Mandy's teaching next week. And I can't wait to hear what she has to say about some of this stuff. It's going to be fantastic. You don't want to miss it. But I will say this. To repent means I see things one way and all of a sudden something happens and it no longer works. It no longer makes sense. It's not for my good anymore. And I turn completely around and walk the other way. It's a metamorphosis. I'm changing. I have decided that blank no longer works for my good. And I'm not going to do that anymore. I really wish that I could get it in my head. Mandy, maybe you can help me with this next week. That cheesecake every day of my life is probably not a good thing. And I need to repent and turn around and go the other way and start eating some more carrots. I'll let you know if that ever happens. It's not likely, though. We talk a lot about our lens, the lens that we bring to the biblical text, the, the lens that we see Jesus through. For example, my lens when I was younger was, was white. I was a woman. I was Southern. I was also insulated. I grew up in a very small environment. There were no African Americans there. There was no one openly gay around me. That It was just we were all the same. I was also a survivor of sexual abuse as a child. So that was my lens, right? But my lens now that I bring to the biblical text is so different. It's still there. I'm still white. I'm still a woman. I'm still Southern. All you got to do is listen to me say one sentence and know I'm from the South. But I'm also divorced. I'm also a mom. I'm also a mom of trans children. I'm mom of a bisexual daughter. I'm married again to the former mayor of Bloomington. So now when I think about things that I might want to say on Facebook, I think, of course I think about you guys. I'm not really much of a bomb thrower anyway, but every now and then I'll get, and I really want to, and now I think, not so much about you guys, because I think you, you know me, but I think about the people that know him, and I think, would this hurt him? Would somebody come after? Would, you know, it's just a different lens. It's a different lens to consider. I'm also a pastor now. My lens is different. So this is where the notebook and the pen comes from. I want you to take three to five minutes, and I want you to write down the lens that you had when you were young, maybe through your 20s. 
What lens were you looking through? And then I want you to write down, what's your lens now? Because our lenses have changed. Anybody that wears prescription glasses know that, right? All right, take three to five minutes. And, and, and for those of you following at home, you do the same thing. You know, the kind of faith that I hold nowadays is a faith that says, I really don't know all the answers. Somebody asked me that had been visiting here. We went out for coffee a while back, and she asked me, she said, but what do I do with Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me? And she asked me, what does that mean now if it doesn't mean what we were always taught to mean? And y'all... In that moment, I'm scrambling. Uh, mm, mm, mm. And I wanted so badly to say something really clever and helpful and nice for her, you know, to be pastoral. You know, I got the answers. I got this. I got this. And I finally just said, I have no idea. I have no idea what it means now. But what I've been doing since then is I've been studying it a little bit more. <laughs> because it is a problematic verse if we see the world a little bit different, right? We've got to think about it a little bit differently now. And deconstruction does not necessarily have to be painful. Some of you have told me that deconstruction was not very painful for you. It was just life went on, you saw it in a different way, and you adjusted. Some of you have gone through very painful deconstruction. I have people that do not speak to me. Some of you have that story too. I have a brother that I haven't spoken to in four years. My nephew's getting married in Mississippi next month, and I didn't even know it. I'm not invited. It's just weird, and it's all because I have pastor on attached to my name, and I happen to be a woman. That's it. Deconstruction can be hard. We lose things along the way. Rachel Hudd Evans would always say that the story of Jesus is the story I'm willing to risk being wrong about. It's the one that I am still drawn to. It's the one that I still cling to when I can't believe anything else. I don't exactly know what uh, that verse means in John, but I'm willing to be wrong about it. And during times and seasons and struggles and hardships, sometimes all I've got is Jesus loves me, this I know, the Bible tells me so, and that gets me through. And the people that I've met along the way have been wonderful. It's made it so much sweeter. Jeremiah said, This very day I point you over nations and empires to dig up and pull down, to destroy and demolish, to build and to plant. Jeremiah was a prophet during great upheaval for the Israelites. Josiah was king of the southern kingdom of Judah, and he called for the worship of only one God, Yahweh. Anything, temple, shrine, relic, whatever, that was, connect, that was not connected to Yahweh was destroyed. But just because there wasn't a physical structure to worship... It did not necessarily change the minds of the Israelites. They were still worshiping other gods. But Judah had specific sins, and they were the sins of idolatry, lying, lack of repentance, stubbornness, adultery, exploitation of women. And God tells Jeremiah, it's time. <clears throat> we're going to dig up, and we're going to pull down. We're going to demolish and destroy, and then we're going to build and plant. Some of the sins, other sins that the Israelites were guilty of in uh, Jeremiah, I thought this was interesting, in 5. 
Like a cage filled with birds, their homes are filled with evil plots, and now they are great and rich. They are fat and sleek, and there is no limit to their wicked deeds. They refuse to provide justice for orphans and deny the rights of the poor. They give false prophecies, and the priests rule with an iron hand. Worse yet, my people like it that way. In chapter 6, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have treated the wound of my people carelessly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. They acted shamefully. They committed abomination, yet they were not ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Thus says the Lord, stand at the crossroads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way lies and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Jeremiah has been called to tear this system down. It's time to dig it up and pull it down. It's time to demolish and destroy. It was a system that privileged the the rich, the fat, (laughs) the people in power over people who are poor. People who are suffering injustices. They're completely looking over these people. They don't care. He's been called to pull down that legalism that the priests are demanding. He's been called to destroy a system that exploits the weak and women and children and to shut the mouths of false prophets. He's been called to remind them that they're built upon truth and what is good for all and to rest. Oh dear, the rest of my sermon is on the printer. This is last week's sermon. You probably don't want that. All right, I'm going off script. Let's see how this ends. This is going to be bad, I can tell. Okay. Yeah, that'd be great. So if Jeremiah is called to pull down, to dig up and pull down these kind of systems where the little guy gets messed up, I won't use the word that we use in proper, not proper, but, you know, whatever. Um... What does that mean that we are supposed to deconstruct? Are we supposed to deconstruct? I think so. I think it's healthy. I think it's good for us. I think that once our our heart has been expanded to love others in a way we've never loved before, that causes us to deconstruct. Uh, When we quit seeing people around us as just, well, they don't believe the way I do, so they're going to hell. You view that person differently. You do. It becomes a project. It becomes, i got to save their soul. What if we change that thinking and said, I'm just going to be your friend. I'm going to let God deal with your soul. I'll just be your friend. Let's go out for dinner. Let's go to a movie. Thank you so much. Oh, there you are. <laughs> In Jeremiah 12, what we just read, he says, Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard, and they have trampled down my field. They have reduced my treasured field to a desolate wilderness. They have devastated her, desolate. She cries out to me in distress. The whole land is desolate, and no one seems to care. Jeremiah is calling out these shepherds who are, not, who are ignoring their flock. That church member is crying out in distress. They've been wounded and taken advantage of and exploited. 
ignored, lied to, groomed, discarded? Who will see that person laying on the ground? Because the shepherds are not. This is the person that Jeremiah is told to build up, to be planted, to be restored, to be overlooked no longer. The person that has been ignored. The person that has been mistreated. Those are where we go. Those are the people that we go to. This is the person that no longer has the option to deconstruct. And if, we, who are pay, if we're paying attention, we might need to stop for a minute and see who that is. I've talked about this a lot. You're probably tired of it. Talking about the narrow way and the broad way, the narrow path and the broad path. And the narrow path is the road that we walk together, not by not listening to certain music or wearing certain clothes, but by choosing to love others the way Jesus did. That's the way, that's the narrow path. So much easier to judge and be critical, isn't it? I mean, it is for me. We need to remember to help people. We need to help people remember who they are. We need to remind people, you know, God loves you. I know it doesn't feel like that, but God loves you. God is for you and not against you. They need to be told that the God they've been taught or have learned to believe and think about may not be the right kind of God. It's not my kind of God. Maybe it shouldn't be yours either. Can I introduce you to a better way to see Jesus? Can I introduce you to a better way to look at Scripture? Does it mean that we don't have any beliefs whatsoever? No. I've heard that before, and I get it. I get it. I, one of my favorite uh, theologians to read is Bart Ehrman. He is a professor of New Testament studies at Duke University, and he was a pastor, went to seminary, did all those things, and then he just, the more he studied, the more he just walked right out of his faith. And so when I was having to read this guy in college, I remember going to Robbie, who should be here today, and saying, I don't want to read this guy. I might lose my faith like he did. Well, I mean, I had to read the book. It was, you know, it was a class, so he wasn't going to let me out of it just because I was squeamish. But turns out he's like the best author out there. We can't be scared of those things. Give it a try. There's more to the world than just our narrow denominational pulls. So what do we need to deconstruct? Well, that depends on you. For me, it was discovering that I am not this perpetual disappointment to God. If anybody needs to hear that this morning, here or here, let me just say, you are not a perpetual disappointment to God. You do make God happy. God really does like you. You know, we get that God loves me, but does God like, yeah, God likes you. God gets so much joy from us. God loves us that much. For you to deconstruct, it could look different. You'll have to trust the Holy Spirit to guide you where that is. Some of you don't need to deconstruct anything, and I love you. <laughs> Please come walk with us at Imago. We need your voice, too. I, I have known some people that are just, um, they, got a, they got a good head start in life in the way that they were taught the Bible in Jesus, and they're functioning, wonderful, happy adults, and I'm jealous of them. <laughs> We need you here too. I just want to offer a word of encouragement too. 
whether you're in the middle of this deconstruction, wherever you are, just beginning, if you are despairing, you feel like you're drowning and nothing feels safe anymore, you are at a safe space at Imago. Nobody, and I mean nobody, and I need you Imagoans who have been here for longer than a minute to amen me on this. No one is going to make fun of you. Thank you. We get it wrong. Do we not? We do. We do. We don't always get this right. I want to tell you something. I was thinking about this on the way to church this morning. I am so grateful for the people that serve on the leadership team. They know a lot of warts about me. They've seen me at my worst. They've seen me in bad positions and states and in, in desperate states of mind even. And they have never one time made me feel less than because that was where I was in that moment. They've just loved me. And that's such a gift to know you are loved. You're not getting judged. We just love you. Several years ago, and I'm wrapping up, several years ago, um, I was in my 20s, so this would have been November 1997. I was 23 years old, and this is when deconstruction began for me. I didn't know it at the time, and I didn't know it till recently, actually. I was good friends with a person in Pontotoc, Mississippi, and uh, we had children the same age. Colby, my oldest, um, was like three or four at the time. And um, this friend had another friend who, was, who had been a lifelong friend. We had just moved to Pontotoc, so this person was a newer friend for me. But she had a friend that she had had since kindergarten. They'd gone to school together, went to college together, were roommates together. They were best of friends like this. They were the thing, okay? This friend of hers went through a rough patch in life, a very rough patch, drug addiction, rehab. She was married, had two young children. She fell in love with a woman, and she wound up leaving her spouse to be with this woman. And so we were uh, getting ready for her child's birthday party. And I asked her, I said, are you inviting blank? Because she was always there. She was always there at every family function. She was like, no, no. I asked, why? She says, because of what she's doing right now. I don't want that around my kids. Is she bringing the girlfriend? No, 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 she's not. She said she wouldn't, but no, no, no. I don't want her. Our kids were three. Three. Come on. I remember thinking at the time, well, I know the Bible says being gay is sin. I don't think that way anymore, by the way. But at that time, I did. But this doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel okay. This feels kind of mean. Like, shut you out of my life? Get out. You can't even be around my three-year-old because you're such an awful human being. That began deconstruction for me. Did I have the guts to tell her that? Why, no. Have you met me? No, I didn't tell her. But I thought it ever since then. That doesn't seem the right way to do this thing. That seems petty and unkind and cruel. Wrote her completely off. They're not friends to this day. You're going to come across somebody like that once in your life that gets mistreated, that gets shoved out. 
and it's going to cause something inside of you to say, that can't be right. That doesn't feel right. That feels icky. When something in your spirit says that's not loving, those actions are not kind, this does not feel like something Jesus would do or say. In my imagination, I could not imagine that Jesus would do that to this woman. It just didn't seem like something he would do. That's our judge. That's our nudge. Do you remember Jesus' words in Matthew 5 from the Sermon on the Mount? You've heard it said to those in ancient times, but I say unto you. What's Jesus saying to you? What are you holding right here? You've been taught. You've been handed down your whole life. Yep, that's it. That's my certainty. I got it. I got it. I got it. But Jesus is saying, I say unto you, you might be wrong. 